Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Bill Lacey. Bill is a Grammy award-winning sound designer, re-recording mixer, and mastering engineer based out of New York City. Bill has worked on countless projects throughout his career, from working with Major League Baseball, the Halo TV series, with Showtime, and so many more. In this episode, we talk about the industry changes he's seen in his time in the audio field, how he broke into doing such a varied amount of projects, his teaching work and how he brings up the next generation of audio students, and why he's still pushing himself to learn new things such as game audio, even though he has an established career in the world of TV, film, and advertising. And as a little definition before we get into the interview, a re-recording mixer is someone who mixes dialogue, sound, and music together at the final stages of a movie project to get it all balanced and sounding good together. We mentioned the term re-recording mixer a lot during the show and I want to make sure that everyone's on the same page and they know what we're talking about. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Bill Lacey. One thing I want to start with is that you've done a ton of different things. You've done, you know, sound design, re-recording, sound editing, mastering, audio restoration, just a ton of different stuff. And from the outside, it would seem like, oh, you planned every single step of this. This was just something that came about through some master plan you had. But that's not always the case for literally anyone in this field. So can you talk to me about how all these things kind of came together and how you knew you wanted to even break into this field? Oh, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) that's a great question. I got into this almost by accident. I'm a guitar player, musician, and I think so many of us who work in sound are musicians of one type or another. And as a kid, you know, I had a Porta studio. I actually started out with a reel-to-reel tape recorder that was two-channel, and it offered something called Sound on Sound, and it was mono-dubbing. You would dub from the left channel to the right channel and then back to the left channel. And I was so desperate to record myself and do overdubs. And, of course you had to really pre-mix everything that way. And so when the Porter Studio came along, and that was a four-track cassette, I mean, that was just amazing because you couldn't afford any of this other stuff. But I met somebody at a party who was working in an audio post-production facility in Manhattan, in New York City. And it was the top audio post house. And I didn't even know what audio post meant. You know, I was I was a musician. I, I I went to Berkeley, so you know I wanted to get into audio recording, but really almost to record myself and record my own music. And I had a job opportunity, and I want to tell you about this because I think this is the kind of job opportunity that most young people that want to get in today would not go near. And it was basically to make the coffee and empty the garbage and deliver packages around New York City with these words spoken to me, there's no hope for advancement. 
And I took the gig because the guy that I met at the time was producing the audio for a cartoon called Thundercats. And he started out exactly the same way. So I took this job. And after about two months of making coffee and putting out the bagels in the studio, and just as I was about to say, that's it, I'm not doing it anymore, somebody up the food chain got got fired, and I got to move up the ladder. And one of the first things I did was doing 35-millimeter mag transfers for Thundercats. And then I got to work on uh, the pre-production for Saturday Night Live, which started at... 8 a.m. on a Friday morning and went to 2 or 3 a.m. whenever they were done kind of thing. So it was a great start to get into the industry. And it really set the tone in two ways for everything that followed. One of the things I learned from the first employer, whose name was Howard Schwartz, was never say no to your clients. Always try to find a solution to whatever they need. That was the first thing. And the second thing was to just be open to whatever opportunities come your way. And from working in a studio like that, I got a, an opportunity to work at you know a world-class music recording studio, which was RCA Studios. Uh, so I got to work there the final five years before that studio closed. And that was really the beginning of the end of all the major studios in the country. CBS Sony closed, I think, shortly after. It, it's a lot of real estate to maintain. Those number of rooms, there were six recording studios in Midtown Manhattan. That's, you know, back in its heyday, I think that people would have looked upon that as something of tremendous value. By the time I was there in the late 80s, early 90s, accountants were very much involved in running companies like that. And they just start to look at the real estate that they're having to pay for that same kind of space. So it was very sad to see that kind of thing go. But when I was there, I was exposed to recording live orchestras, just, you know, these rooms. Studio A and RCA was this incredible space where Beauty and the Beast soundtrack was recorded there. I got to work on Scorsese's uh, Cape Fear uh, soundtrack recording. Uh, Spike Lee did all his film records there. Vladimir Horowitz would do his solo piano recordings. And there was a, a microphone room, not a closet, I mean a room. And there were just buckets on the wall where you could just pick up a U87 or a 67, and you almost like we would toss them back in. I mean, we just had so many. Like like today, like people would be like, oh, put that, put that down very carefully. But we had every kind of vintage, incredible microphone. I didn't even know what half these mics were when I started working. And so I was able to work with these incredible engineers that had recorded Elvis and Sam Cooke and these great operas. And they just were so giving of their expertise. And that's something I think that has really been lost today by the absence of real recording studios where people could get jobs as interns and kind of work their way up from the bottom. 
And I think maybe it's, we, we can maybe talk about it a little later, but, you know, with the advent of software, it's not quite the same experience. And I think maybe software gives people a false impression of accomplishment because everybody can do pretty much the same thing, you know, with that software. So, but anyway, I, I was exposed to mastering and, and restoration. I got on a three-year-long project restoring the music of Arturo Toscanini and the MVC Symphony. So this this dude was like the greatest classical conductor of all time. I didn't know anything about classical music at all. So I got this education by taking on this job and, and doing this work. And you would get a 14-inch reel of tape that would have, let's say, a recording of uh, Wagner's Right of the Valkyrie. And there'd be 30 or 40 edits in the tape and you'd put it on a machine and every time the tape would hit a splice, it would break because the glue would just start to disintegrate after sitting in a vault for 40 something years. And you'd have to manually clean the splices and clean the oxide off the tape heads and put everything back together and take you a day to transfer an hour's worth of original recorded sound. So it, it was quite uh, the experience. And this was at the dawn of really audio restoration because the first restoration systems were coming on the market. And the one that I got exposed to right from the get-go, and I've always had a very close association with, is the Cedar Audio restoration system, which back in those days... There was nothing real-time about it. You had to put it into a computer DOS-based system and enter some parameters, and then you would process it in the background. And then they started to introduce real-time processing. So it was really the, the dawn of things that we take for granted now with a $100 plug-in. But in those days, it was you know $100,000, $150,000, very expensive stuff. So being exposed to this technology and being exposed to recording in these incredible acoustic spaces, I mean, you can't buy an education like that, you know. So it it was really quite quite exciting to be there. But those are days that are gone. Those are those are past. And digital had sort of come around by the late '80s. And you know, the thing about digital today is that, like, I love digital recording, the flexibility that you have with it is just amazing. So when you're editing dialogue today, it is so easy, whether you're in Pro Tools <laughs> or Nuendo or, or Reaper. I remember having to edit voiceover with five advertising suits in the room and with analog tape, and you, you'd have to cut the breath out, and you'd, you'd have to take that little piece of tape and place it on the side, and then if your phrasing wasn't right, you'd have to put it back and then you'd, the tape fell on the floor, you were in big trouble. And it would take so long to do stuff like that. So those of us who are working in analog, like we couldn't wait to get rid of analog. And this idea of all these plugins that reintroduce all the idiosyncrasies and inefficiencies of analog back into the process, I'm, I'm like, wait. We hated working with analog. <laughs> it was noisy. The machines kept breaking down. You know, there was crosstalk, all kinds of stuff that was not ideal. And today it's so ironic that we're trying to put it all back in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
from there, after RCA closed, it was really starting a journey sort of as a freelance uh, audio engineer. And I ended up taking RCA records as a client and doing mastering for them for about uh, another seven or eight years and uh, some other classical labels. I've been composing music for something like Sesame Street or uh, Showtime uh, Network is a streaming service that I do a lot of work for. So I've written music for them for some of their shows and a lot of their promos and trailers. And I do a lot of mixing and sound designing uh, for them today. And one of the things I learned around the end of the decade, as the record industry started to implode, was that it's very dangerous to put all your eggs in one basket as a freelance audio professional. And I learned the hard way that when you do that and something happens to that client, which in the case of what happened at the end of the last decade was the record industry had almost gone out of business as Napster and the illegal downloads just really pummeled the bottom line for uh, for the record industry. So the lesson from that is diversify and get your hands into as many different aspects of recording as you possibly can. And that's what I did. And so one of the things I did, I started writing for magazines. Uh, so I wrote for Sound on Sound in the UK and another magazine called Resolution. And I started teaching. Now I've been teaching at Montclair State University for about 15, 16 years. And I teach a beginner class and an advanced class in sound to film and television students. And that's really the art of teaching. And I think you're going to find a lot of audio professionals who have been in it, the game a while really get something out of teaching because there's something about the process of teaching someone else something. You have to find a way to articulate something that you do really well, but maybe you do it almost intuitively. I mean, think about like anything that you do and like somebody says, well, how'd you do that? And it's sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I just did this. Or, you know, you try to say, oh, well, it's my secret. You know, I just, <laughs> you know, I felt it, you know, or I put the glue. That doesn't help anybody. Right. So you need to think of a way to explain it coherently. And if you're in front of 20 people, five or 10 of those people will understand what you're saying right away. But another five will be like, oh, I'm not so sure. And then another five will be totally lost. And I remember when I was in school, if you didn't get it, it was sort of your problem. Somebody threw out the one explanation and that was it. And what I do with my teaching is I, I try to understand, okay, what is it about what I just said was not clear to this group of people? Is there another way that I can explain it that will help them? So I start to take an approach that it's not on them to figure it out. It's on me to find a better way to articulate those ideas. And it's that process of having to understand what it is that you do and how you do it and being able to explain it in a coherent way, I think makes you better at doing that. That's why I enjoy it so much. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Oh my, there's so much to dive into everything you just said. But one thing I want to kind of hit on, and this can relate to your students and to you, but when you were just getting started, you're the bagel guy, you're just getting started. What was your mindset when it came to learning all these new skills? Because I'm sure people kind of just plopped you into different situations and you just had to figure it out. You didn't have the internet to just Google. (laughs) So how did you, what was your mindset around that? No (laughs) YouTube. I guess what really helps and I think is really necessary is to survive in this business. And when I say this business, it's a very broad term because I think it's anything in audio whether it's music, whether it's games, whether it's film or television, uh, radio, sports broadcasting, you're fundamentally using the same core set of skills. You're tweaking the application for the delivery. Uh, when you're talking about linear versus nonlinear, so for instance, this between television and, and games, you do have to make a more substantial adjustment to the process. But your fundamental core skills, I think, are are the same. And I think that it's really important to be curious about things, about how things work, why things work, to want to learn how do you do that. And today, it's so much easier because you could just get a plug-in for $20 and practice with something like that, or you can go onto YouTube and, I mean, there is an answer for almost anything. Of course, Googling something. I mean, it is bonkers, the number of sources that you can turn to for an answer for anything. I mean, I don't think anybody actually reads a manual today, but there was a time when, like, I used to love a good software manual because even the magazines, which were relatively current, there was no way that you could get a real tutorial about how do you use this or how do you use that compressor or how do you use that EQ. I, I worked in one of the first studios in New York City to get an SSL console. And how did I learn how to use that? Well, there was a really big, long manual, but most of it was you had to just stay after hours and just try, well, how does sound get through this console? How does this work? How does a compressor work? How do you store a setting uh, of automation? And that meant being in the studio 60 to 80 hours a week because you had to do your job. And then when you weren't doing your job, you were just hanging out, working with the equipment because I couldn't take an SSL home with me (laughs) and there were no plugins. (laughs) So really just being curious and watching how other people did it. So I guess in some ways that is the modern equivalent of watching a YouTube tutorial as to how to mix for film, something like that. You know, and you would sit there and you just be an assistant and you would watch and learn and then try it yourself. And you'd bring in your own band off hours, and then they would throw you into a session with the wolves, and you learned the hard way. And sometimes you'd get eaten alive. Advertising people were really the first bunch that I worked with outside of Saturday Night Live. So a lot of jingles. And advertising people are really, really tough. They're probably like the meanest people and most demanding you'll ever meet. (laughs) And it's like, 
everybody else in my career has been like wonderful. <laughs> They're so nice. So I guess it was good to start out with maybe the toughest bunch of people in the world. Uh, but there's so much money riding on those big advertising spots with major ad companies. So uh, hopefully to answer your question, just, you know, being curious and, um, you know, it was really reading the manual. I know it's such a foreign thing today, but man, that, or else you would, you, there was no way to figure it out. You know, yeah. in, when a magazine did come out with a review, it's very different today. Magazine reviews are shorter. The word counts are, are pretty thin. Back in those days, you could almost read a review of, let's say, an Akai sampler. And by the end of that review, you'd know how to use the sampler if you went into the studio. They were that detailed. And you don't have that anymore. But you have like a guy on YouTube taking you through two hours worth of how to use this new sampler. And that's wonderful. Yeah. And considering, you know, you're teaching students or in this kind of modern era with like YouTube and Google and all that sort of stuff, but they don't have what you had, which is starting as a studio intern and then working their way up and getting all this exposure. How do you kind of advise them to grow and learn after they kind of get out of school? And what do you kind of think they should be thinking about? Yeah, that that's a really important part of what I think about when I have advanced students. And this is just one class that I, did, I do once a year, but it's the class that I love the most because they sort of want to be me. And <laughs> I, I take that responsibility very seriously. And I know that certainly in film and television and in the New York City area, there's not a lot of jobs and there's a lot of people who want them. So how are these students going to have a chance when they get out there? So part of what I do is I take this big giant bucket of cold water and I throw it on them and try to help them understand that more than likely when they graduate, as much as they want to, they're not likely to start doing what I do right away. And I, I try to help them temper their expectations because I think if they don't, they're going to be unprepared for what they're going to run into. So what I do try to do is encourage them to not just give 100% because I really don't think that's enough anymore. I think that for any of us to survive in the industry, it's really all about what you do beyond that, the sort of the added value, the 150%, the 200% that you bring to the project. That's maybe what's going to differentiate you from somebody else. So I teach them about how important it is to be enthusiastic about your work, no matter what it is, because you can't get the lower paying job and treat it with less care and consider consideration. Because every single thing that we do is representative of who we are as, as a professional. And that's how I tend to treat things. So whether I'm if I get, let's say, a small indie filmmaker who doesn't have a lot of money as, let's say, a big streaming television network, I treat that person's job with the same degree of enthusiasm. And it's as important to me as the big high-profile stuff that I've worked on. So this last year, I, I, I worked on a, 
a horror film, a mixed horror film for an indie director. And it was a ton of fun to work on because first of all, any horror thing for sound is just great. I mean, you were always going to have a great time. And it was really tough because I was doing a lot of other things at the same time. And the director didn't have a ton of money, but I had a blast doing it. And I put a lot of time and energy into it. And when you take jobs like that, you have to not look at what is the hourly rate that you're making. You, you, you flat rate the job and then you do the best work that you can. You know, if I look at that job and look at how much I was likely making per hour, you know, it's probably like less than minimum wage at the end of the day. But it, when you do a good job, that director is going to remember what you did for them. And, you know, that's something then that you could be proud of. And it's something that you can put on your reel. So that's just as important to me as when I work, let's say like I mixed some trailers for the Halo TV show at the end of last year and beginning of this year, really high profile stuff. A lot of people got to see and hear that, but I put just as much care into consideration as the low budget film as, as that project. So that's, that's what you need to do. And more than likely, when you just get started, you're going to, maybe if you're really lucky, you'll get some reality TV show work, which in and of itself are really, really hard to do because the audio is often just horrific. So you're not going to have really good microphone recordings. You're going to have a lot of location noise. And so I'll hit those students up with that type of a project. You know, instead of giving them something that's got pristine audio and it's something like, you know, wow, like this is like a movie that's just been released. You too can do this. That's not really reality. So I try to help them understand that you got to do all these other things first and then earn your way to that point where someone will trust you with something as valuable as a TV trailer or a movie trailer or a film mix or a score for television show. So you have to humble them a little bit, I think, to get them in the right frame of mind. And then I push them really, really hard, hold them to the same thing that would be expected from me. This way, when they're done, I have a better sense that they're ready to go out there. And whether it's mixing, editing, or sound design, they'll get better with each job. No one's going to be great out of the box. The more they do and the more anybody does, the better you're going to be. So having the right kind of expectations and also teaching them the importance of communication and being able to be sociable in a professional environment. It's very, very tough if like if you're an introverted person. And I was introverted when I got started in this business. And it's sort of, if you want to work in this business, you have got to learn to be more extroverted, to be able to sit in a, a room with somebody for eight hours. You have to have some idea of how to have a conversation and find something that they're interested in talking about. Being silent and great is maybe not going to get you as far as being just okay, but a lot of fun to hang out with because you'll get better over time. So those are kind of some of the key points that I try to bring from my experience and some of the things I learned the hard way. 
to help them avoid making those mistakes that I made. Because I always tell them that most of what I've done, I've learned by, at some point in time, I've messed up. I've done something wrong. And everything else that I did helped to prevent me from losing the job. Which key to that is not making that same mistake twice. I think there's a line from the old Star Trek TV show with the engineer Scott where he said, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. And that's something that I really try to live by. And I think I've mostly been able to do that. And you mentioned, uh, you know, nowadays you need to go a little bit beyond 100%, right? And the skills that you need and the things that you do can't just be the bare minimum or anything like that. But can you talk about what that beyond 100% is? Is it just, oh, now I am better at mixing this sort of thing, and now I'm a better sound designer, or is there other kind of hidden skills involved in that? Well, for me personally, even though I consider myself a composer, I honestly don't make the vast majority of my living as a composer. It's from mixing, it's from mastering, it's from sound design, it's from audio restoration. And there's there's fewer jobs available for composers. I think just in general, in all industries, composing, making a full-time living as a composer is really hard. So what I end up doing is bringing all that musical skill set and whether it's sound design or mixing or how I structure a project, I approach things from a very compositional perspective. And I'll often think in terms of musical sounds, then let's say a hard sound effect from a, a effects library or a Foley sound. What musical tone can work and better tell the story or, or create the emotion that the client is looking for? And there are times when you simply can't do that. It depends on what sort of what the brief is and what your role is. Typically, many of the things that I work on, I do all the different aspects of the job. So I'll do the recording and I'll do the sound design and then I'll do the mixing and then sometimes I'll do the composing. So I can leverage all the different skill sets, each one to help the other one out. So the music is one big added value that I bring, and especially to the trailer work that I do, because that really, really is helpful, especially when people use stock music. And the library music can be really, really effective when it's cut by an experienced editor, but sometimes the music just doesn't go where the client needs it to go. It doesn't pay off in the way that they need it to pay off. And what I'll often do is add that missing component of the music on top of what's already there. And so they refer to that these days as music overlays in, in the trailer world. So that's where you take something, you know, past 100 and just give it the extra energy or tyranny eye, if that's what somebody's looking for. So that's one important thing. The second thing is related to the flat rate sort of phenomenon in that just do whatever is called for without sort of nickel and diming the client every single step of the way. So if you've taken on something and you didn't discuss, let's say, charging for Foley up top and 
now you're going to do foley. I really need some foley here. Then just do the foley and just make it sound great. And really any aspect of that project, once you've committed to it, you're committed to their success, the success of the project and whatever it takes to get to that project. If you are constantly trying to add more and more things on top of it, then you're potentially going to create a bad vibe with, with the client. Now, keeping in mind too, that there is a point where you have to, let's say, not let yourself be taken advantage of, and you have to sometimes push back and say, Hey, look, you know, this is really, we're in like the 14th round of notes and this is really going on and on and on. Like there needs to be an, an end point. So the smart way to deal with that is try to build the end point in right from the get go. But up until the point that you get to that, do everything you can to make it a successful. And just think of it from the point of view of if I can hit a home run for the client, they'll be very happy. And they're more than likely to ask you back the next time. And so many people that I work with are people that I've been working with year after year, literally decade after decade, because that's how you build trust and people understand that you're not going to let them down, that you're going to do quality work, and that they like hanging out with you. So all those things are going to channel into success and a long career. The other thing I tell my students right from the get-go, and they don't like to hear this, but it's true. The hard part is not actually getting the first job. That's actually easier in the grand scheme of things. I really believe that the hard part is staying gainfully employed for a lifetime, doing what you love doing. And, and there's a lot of people that are doing that. And there's a lot of people that give up and don't keep going. That's maybe one of the most important lessons to impart. I love it. And can you talk about that? Because you mentioned decades with the same client, right? They'll keep calling you back over and over. But there is a mindset, and I had this when I was a student too, where it's like, ah, I have Logic Pro. Now I'm ready for all the top clients in the world. But, you know, it takes so much time to get to that point. So can you talk about how long you've taken to get to the point that you are? Oh, gosh. Well, in literal terms, it's taken about 37 years to get here. but. It's interesting. I almost feel like the journey to learn and get better is one that never ends. It's constantly evolving. And that goes back to what I was talking earlier about curiosity. I don't think, well, I'll speak for myself and I'll suggest for everybody else out there, but uh, I don't think that I know everything. I think I could be better at what I do. I always think that there's a better mix to be done. There's a better piece of music you can write. There is more creative sound design you can do. You just haven't done it yet. And you need to keep trying, keep plugging away. And to, to that extent, just as sort of a, a side story, because it'll bring me up to date, more current with what I've been doing recently. Um, my son who started in college and he wanted to be a film director. And he said to me, because uh, he had to take all these math and science and reading and and they were they were hard. Those are like, I'm terrible at math. <laughs> and we would come to me for help. I'd say like, dude, I'm really sorry, but like daddy sucks at math. <laughs> like algebra is not my thing. But 
He said, Dad, do I really need a degree? Can I take just the film courses? You didn't get a degree, Dad. And I had gotten a degree. I, I, ran, I went to Berkeley in Boston, and I ran out of money. And then I started in the recording studio making coffee, and I've worked my way up. And I was teaching in a university, but I didn't have my undergrad degree. So I was like, ah, okay. I need to set a good example. <laughs> so thankfully, Berkeley was offering their undergrad degrees online. And so it took three years to finish it, sort of part-time. And while doing that, I took a couple of classes in game, audio, and music, with one with Gina Zdanowicz and one with Michael Sweet. And they are both, besides being very talented, at what they do professionally. They're really good teachers. And they both have books. Gina has a book out now with uh, Spencer Bambrick that she works with. And uh, Michael Sweet's book on music, interactive music is like a standard. And that got me looking at games because when I started playing games in life it was at an arcade you know it was pong it was space invaders it was these big machines that ate quarters and as i was starting to work professionally in in sound that whole thing wasn't very appealing because it was 8-bit sound it was mono audio was not what it was today and when i was taking these classes i sort of rediscovered games and just so amazed at how incredible sound and music is in video games today. I mean, the state of art is on a par with television and, and film. And I was just blown away. And, and you also had this extra thing that was happening, which was called middleware. And I was like, this is really cool. So FMOD and WISE, phenomenal. I really love WISE in particular. So the pandemic comes around and things start to shut down and I've got a little more time on my hands, not commuting into New York City every day. So I decided to get a master's in fine arts in video game music and audio because the single biggest sort of complaint that I would hear from people who are working in a game world about people who worked in film and television who wanted to work in a game world was that it's not just a sidestep and here you are and now you get to do it. There's a lot more to it than that. And I wanted to respect what they were saying and really learn and understand what's behind nonlinear sound and music for video games. So I got a master's in it and I also got my certification in WISE. I got the actual teacher certification because, again, going back to what I spoke about earlier with teaching, it's one thing to know how to do something. It's a whole other thing to be able to teach it. And so I took the teacher certification because I knew it would, be, it would push me harder, and it certainly did, to be able to teach WISE. You really need to know it in and out. So I feel like I've paid my dues in a certain sense, which is something that I did early on in my career, and I was happy to do all over again.
And it's been a wonderful journey and, and starting to become exposed to a whole new community of people who are really, really nice and friendly, maybe even more so than television and film people. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're really nice on Twitter. I'll say that. <laughs> but there's something amazing to what you just said, where you'll see kind of from the outside people who have, quote unquote, made it where we think, oh, no, they're done. They don't need to learn anymore. They don't need to. They just have to sit back. The gigs will roll in. But you said the opposite just now. Yeah, no, it doesn't. You have to work very hard. And there are no guarantees with anything in life. And that's what, that's what goes back to the sort of the hard thing is staying gainfully employed, whether you're in games or whether you're in film or television or, or in the music industry. You have to really, really work at it. The switch always needs to be on. It can never be off. It's it's almost very hard for me to take time off and let's say go on vacation. <laughs> uh, my family will vouch for me on this <laughs> because I'm so dialed into the work and the process uh, and I really love it. But I did this master's two years full-time while working full-time and teaching and I did the Y certification and I mixed some films on the side. So I'm either a glutton for punishment or I'm just a really <laughs> good student. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Well, one last question or second to last question to ask you as we start to wrap up. And I'm sure you know what it is because you listened to the podcast before. But when you're first starting out, whatever you want to deem that to be true when you're like first starting out as a musician or when you're the bagel person at the offices or whatever, what did you define as success? How did you define success? And how has that changed over time? And what is that today? What is that definition today? Yeah, okay. Well, success, the definition has most certainly evolved. Before I get into the game, when I was a kid, I wanted to be in the Beatles, which of course was ridiculous. They had already long broken up, <laughs> but you can dream, right? <laughs> but I think when you're just getting started, you start to you try to define success by probably two types of milestones. One is certainly financial, and the other is fame. And very early on, I got kind of lucky because some of the mastering projects that I worked on, uh, a few of them were nominated for Grammy awards, and one that I worked on won a Grammy award. So that was like, I was feeling successful because, wow, like I'm making a decent living and look at these awards. Isn't that cool? It's really hard to sustain the awards yeah. stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I'm here to tell you that not every project is like a Grammy or Oscar or game award moment. There's a lot of sort of grunt stuff that we do in our careers and that, you know, I'm still doing. And when you're self-employed, I mean, you do everything. You're, you're your own accountant. You're your own publicist. You have to empty your own garbage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have to figure out there's nobody there to tech support for you. You've got to do all that. So those early definitions changed over time because every career will go up and down. And certainly when the record industry imploded and I had no more record company work and I was looking 
to get back into post-production and I was teaching and I was starting writing more music and writing for magazines, all these different things, you cobble together enough of a living to survive or to financially exceed your expectations and buy more gear, which <laughs> I've always bought too much gear and probably spent way too much money on plugins. Mm -hmm. But that definition has changed. And I think this is pretty natural as you get older in life. You define success by merely the fact that you're still gainfully employed, that people still respect your opinion, that they come to you for solutions. Because so much of what we do, I certainly what I do, and I think maybe what you do too, is hard for people just getting started, started out to understand. But so much of the job is about problem solving. I have a problem. That problem is whether it's this thing needs music or it needs sound design or the sound design that's there doesn't work or the music that you wrote isn't really what I was thinking of. Or I know I said red yesterday, but I want blue today. And be able to pick yourself up off the floor and brush off your ego and get back into it after you've shattered a few expletives. <laughs> but but it's it's the fact that after so many years, success is I'm still doing it and I love it so much. And I feel honored and blessed that there are people who trust me to keep working for them. And there's, there's no better feeling in life to get paid for something that you love to do. Hmm. What a lovely note to start wrapping up on. With that, but the last question is always, where can people find you? Feel free to plug, plug anything. Well, I think the, the, the two best places to find me are uh, on Twitter. So you could reach me at Pro Tools Mixer. Pro Tools is my primary <laughs> do, do of choice, so it's kind of easy to remember. So Pro Tools Mixer, and then I don't do a website anymore. So uh, LinkedIn, so that's um, linkedin.com backslash in, I-N, backslash Bill-Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I think people are going to get some lovely insights from this. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, uh, Akash, and I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to, uh, you know, ask any questions or just talk about some of the things that we spoke about today. Beautiful. Sounds great. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game music and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound biz pod, sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.